All right, welcome back to the show. It's a bunch of audio files that we like to call the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. Is it the coolest name of any podcast you've ever heard of? No, of course not. All the cool names have been taken. But do we have cool people on it? Yes, as a matter of fact, we do. <laughs> Just like on this episode, we'll get to that in a moment. But I'm kind of liking this song. This is Sunkissed by Daniel Fridell, if that's how you pronounce his name. I snagged it from the Epidemic Sound website. It's got a jazz groove to it, obviously. Uh, I'm partial to that. Actually, in the multiverse somewhere, I am a jazz musician. Like freaking Thelonious Monk or Corey Henry, somebody like that. Somewhere, surely, in the multiverse, that's happening with me. Anyhow, just got back from Open and Relational Theology Conference in Wyoming. It was a great time there, hanging out with folks and all kinds of really cool people, in addition to Ilya DeLeo, Trip Fuller, Bruce Epperly, Ikaputra Tupamahu, uh, Tom Ord, of course, and others. And uh, hey, you should join us next July out in the Tetons. It's a lot of fun. Speaking of Trip Fuller, he's doing a thing called Beer Theology Camp in October this year. And you should use my name. That's right. Use my name as a promo code to get 25 bucks off. Just use Jonathan Foster. I'm going full capitalism here using my actual name as a promo code. That's a beer theology camp or theology beer camp. I don't know. If you Google theology beer camp with Chip Fuller, you'll find out about how to get a ticket at Eventbrite. And it'll be fun to see you there in October. Speaking of Eventbrite, we've got a conference coming up here in August that I'm pretty excited about. Hopefully you're listening to this before August. If you're listening to it after August, I don't know, uh, track me down. Maybe you can find the recordings of this. But search for Girardian Intersections on eventbrite.com because uh, I have invited some friends of mine, Jennifer Garcia Bashaw, who's on the episode today, Julia Robinson Moore, Tom Ord, Andre Robbie, Brian Zond, and myself. It's going to be four hours of Girardian goodness online August 19th from 1 to 5. I hope you'll join us. So uh, check it out and find your ticket there. All right, so my conversation today is with my new friend, Dr. Jennifer Garcia Bashaw, or JGB, as all of her close buddies call her. Actually, I don't know that. I just made that up. Dr. JGB is a New Testament professor at Campbell University. She's also working with the good people at a little podcast maybe you've heard of called Bible for Normal People. And she wrote a book not long ago, actually, I think just last year it came out, called Scapegoats, The Gospel Through the Eyes of a Victim. I highly recommend the book. It's a solid Girardian resource. So it was really fun to have her on today. We're going to talk about the book. We'll talk a little bit about what she might be presenting at Girardian Intersections, our Eventbrite conference coming up in a few weeks, and uh, some other stuff about her life. A lot of fun to have her. You can tell by just listening to her. She, uh, she has a personality, which is always nice. It's always nice to be around an academic who's not boring. It's tough to find sometimes. We got a whole bunch of them coming up at this conference. Dr. JGB is just one of them. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. Here's my conversation with Jennifer. Peace, everyone. 
There we go. All right. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I know. Are you summer break, right? So are you mm-hmm. taking some time off? Yeah. So I don't. Um, I'm not on contract in the summer, um, so I don't have to teach. But I am teaching an online class, so doing that and some writing and things like that. But I'm trying to take some rest time. <laughs> are you Are you playing any uh, viola or? violin or cello oh no that's my husband's guitar case. oh okay wow from here it looks like it looks smaller so yeah no it, it's a guitar case okay that's <laughs> fine too well anyhow uh it's really great to connect with you and um look forward to having a chat about well whatever we want to chat about but certainly Rene Girard and uh some of the stuff we're going to collaborate on here later well it's coming up later in the summer it's only as of this recording, only about six weeks away. So, right. so yeah, tell me a little bit or tell us a little bit about you. Uh, this is Jennifer Garcia Bashaw. I'll obviously do some introductions and stuff in the show notes and some mm-hmm. other things before we get going. But tell us a little bit about you, where you come from and uh, what you do in life. Yeah. So uh, I'll start with what I do. I do teach at a Baptist University, not Southern Baptist, but (laughs) Baptist University called Campbell. And it's in North Carolina, about 30 miles south of Raleigh. And I teach uh, New Testament and Christian ministry. So my students are undergrads. So I teach undergrads, but I teach um, those who are thinking of going into ministry. But then I also teach, you know, general Bible classes, biblical interpretation classes, um, things like that. Um, but I have been Baptist my whole life. So I grew up in Texas and I was Southern Baptist growing up. And so, uh, made my way, um, to different Baptist traditions as I got older, um, because they don't allow women ministers. They (laughs) doubled down on that recently, actually. (laughs) So, but I felt a call to ministry, um, as a teenager. And so I kind of had to follow a different path. Um, I was trying to stay Baptist actually. And so that's why I ended up pursuing a more academic route because it was easier um, mm-hmm. as a woman to, to pursue the academic route than trying to be a senior pastor of a church. Um, but then um, I just, I still feel a, a really strong calling to Baptists, especially to kind of lead them away from some of the Southern Baptist roots. And so um, I do things with a denomination called Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, called CBF, um, which was a group that broke off of the Southern Baptists um, when they, the fundamentalist takeover happened um, in the 80s. And so they support women in ministry. So I work with them and do things with that. I work um, with the Bible for Normal People. So I do, I'm, I was, I was going to say I'm their only New Testament nerd in residence, but we just got a new one. Um, so I'm one of the nerds in residence, which means I just provide content and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I write too. So I have a book called Scapegoats that's out and um, I'll show it to you right here. Here it is. And then um, I've got it right just, here on my phone too. Oh, nice! And ju- and then I just finished um, a book for the Bible for normal people, but it I think it won't come out till maybe October. Um, okay. It's John for normal people, so it's a commentary okay. on the Gospel of John. Is that the plan with those guys or with that group to do commentaries on 
Yes. So they've yeah. had they have five out, I think now. Is that right? They have Genesis, Exodus, oh, okay. Jonah, Psalms. So those are all Old Testament. And then their one New Testament that's out is, is Romans for normal people. So well, yeah. I'm, I'm late. I'm late to the game then. I gotta I gotta get get on that stuff. Yeah, no, they're fun. Um yeah. I, it's it was really fun to write because instead of like you know, sticking to that really dry commentary, you know, format that most commentaries have, I kind of got to be creative with it. And so it was fun. That's pretty cool. And then um, my husband uh, is the head of a nonprofit um, here in North Carolina that works with um, um, how, un- affordable housing. Yep. And then uh, we have three sons that are all school age, 17, 14, and 11. I saw that in the uh, dedication to the book. I assume that was your husband and your and your boys. Yes, yes. So I am in a house full of of males. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good times. It's fun. They're great. I mean, they're easy to raise. I've not had a, a, many problems with these with these guys. They're great. That's good. That's good. Yeah. That's it's good to hear. Um, <laughs> and and they're getting they're getting older. So man, just you're right around the corner from little empty nesting I oh gosh i don't even want to think that. about that <laughs> it happens quickly and um and yeah just prepare yourself for that because it's a whole new world yeah wow it's crazy but yeah, that's me that's great well thank you so much um so yeah i had several thoughts your book is great by the way and thank you Thanks. for writing that and so even as you kind of you know, introduced yourself and talked about the Baptist thing. Would it be safe to say um, that you felt scapegoated to some degree in that former denominational environment that you were in? And and was that the thing that potentially led you to someone like Gerard? Or am I reading too much into it? Well, yes, I would. I would not have known the the language to say that yeah. then that I was being scapegoated. But yes, especially when you're talking about sexually scapegoated, you know, just the way that women, um, young women especially, are treated and blamed for you know all sorts of sexual things. <laughs> so I, I can definitely point back to that. But that wasn't the reason that um, I got interested in Gerard. I actually didn't get interested in Gerard until my um, my PhD when I was working my dissertation, and, and I was. I was focusing on martyrdom um, in the Gospels, and then I got into Ignatius of Antioch, who was someone who was very eager to be martyred, at least from his writings. And um, one day, my uh, dissertation mentor just handed me um, Gerard's scapegoat book first, I think that was the first one, um, and said, I think you should read this guy. That, that was how it happened. I just started reading him um, to kind of think about the idea of martyrdom and and that kind of death, um, sacrifice, ritual, stuff like that. Um, and so I'm kind of an unlikely per- person to study Gerard, to be honest with you, because I feel like most people who study Gerard um, are like are philosophers, um, theologians. Right. And I'm a, a, a Bible scholar, which is different, really, than being a theologian. <laughs> Yeah, but that's, of course, as you know, it's one of the great things about Gerard is um, he was such a polymath and his stuff like bleeds over into all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. And so mm-hmm. it's so fascinating to have discussions with people kind of from all different genres who are learning more and more about some of his really brilliant, interesting stuff. Right, exactly. Even though I will say, like, as a, a, as a Bible scholar, I'm a literary critic, 
which is really what he started out doing. So it does yeah. that in that way, it makes sense. That's probably why I felt uh, when I read him, I felt like we were kindred in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what were some of the initial concepts where like the light started to go on and you started to think, Oh gosh, yeah, this is like really resonant with what I've been discovering, or this is something that I had never thought about, but makes so much sense. Or, yeah. It ended up being, um, most of his work about the Bible, like was, it's a game changer, really, when you start reading it, especially coming from an evangelical right. context, when you start thinking about, um, oh, maybe the sacrifices that are described in the Bible are not from God. <laughs> this violence does not originate from God. Maybe it actually originates with us. Um, that's huge. And it, and, it, and it gives you this paradigm shift that makes you think through the Bible in a different way. But, I mean, he is also um, someone to pair with evangelical theology because he does have a high view of scripture. If you want to think about, like, it is scripture, the Bible is the key to unlocking um, this this cycle of sacred violence and everything. And so he's so fascinating because a lot of evangelicals probably wouldn't want to read him because then you have to say, oh, well, all the things in um, Old Testament about sacrifice is not straight from God. It's from human beings. So that's like, if you can get over that hump and then there's just so much, so much opens up um, to think about Jesus as life and the gospels and and just the nature of scripture and everything. And so that's, that was my big sort of game changer, what he says about the Bible. Well, and obviously another big hump connected to that would be the whole, uh, yeah, the death of Jesus, like needing to happen. Yeah. Right. So so that would be a second hump. And if so, evangelicals can get over that. Yes. Well, they may not be evangelical any longer if they get over that. Yes. It depends on how you define evangelical. right, Right. 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 Yes. The yeah. The second one is the atonement stuff. Um, though I will say, a lot of people who are evangelicals don't really even know that there are more ways to look at the atonement. Um, and sometimes, if you give them those, then they will open up a little bit. Um, yeah. Sometimes they're just like, "Oh, that's just you know what happened." <laughs> like, okay. no, there are lots of different ways to explain this. <laughs> yeah, and lots of different people have been trying to explain it for a very long time. It's not right. just what we've been saying the last hundred years here in America. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, it probably was the atonement thing that, especially the penal substitutionary stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm not Baptist background. I'm church of the Nazarene background, but mm-hmm. very, very similar. A lot of Nazarenes wouldn't know that they were uh, theologically Southern Baptists or not. <laughs> that's right. I, that that kind of sounded disrespectful. I don't mean it to be like that, but that's just the reality of American Christianity. Right. So when I finally you know, I was intuiting that this sacrifice was this something didn't quite add up. And then when Girard gave me the language, you know, yeah. in the capacity mentally, intellectually to kind of connect the dots. Yeah. Game changer to use your word. Yeah. And it was kind of like uh, nothing has ever really been the same since then, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Well, you um, and I and some other friends are going to collaborate on August 19th online uh, with a little conference we're calling Girardian Intersections. And the idea is that the thinking of Girard, as we've already alluded to, you know, intersects with so many different thoughts. Um, And we've talked about you uh, and some of your work, maybe without giving it all away, what, uh, or maybe you need to give it all away. It doesn't matter either way. 
what what do you imagine you're going to be talking about and what are you excited about as we uh, get together on the 19th of August? Yeah, so I've been thinking about and um, trying to articulate what I call um, scapegoat hermeneutics. Um, not that I'm inventing it. It gets been you, you know, these are have been used in the last 15, 20, even maybe 25 years. Um, but but I'm trying to gather it together to kind of see how different biblical scholars have used Gerard in their studies. Um, and so that's what I'm going to be talking about. Like, what does it look like? Um, to come to scripture and interpret it through through a Girardian lens and like what insights do we get from that and what does it look like to kind of apply that um, as a hermeneutic. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know how much I, I want to give away necessarily, but I it will talk, I will talk about, you know, how Gerard can help us look at Old Testament or Hebrew Bible things differently, how Gerard, of course, helps us look at the Gospels in a different way, um, how Gerard has some um, ideas about how the canon um, sort of conflicts with itself, that there are some times like in Hebrews or other places where maybe the authors are, are um, falling back into sort of a scapegoating model um, without knowing it. And so I think that that's really fascinating um, how it, it it shows us new ways of looking at a, a canon in conversation with itself. Um, so I'll talk about that. Um, yeah, that's and good. probably give some some examples of how, how to use that. If you could take a Girardian lens and go to particular passage passages with it, like what does that look like? That sounds super helpful. I love that scapegoating hermeneutic. Can you imagine if I, if we would all had um, that kind of text? And like you said, that stuff exists out there. But um, just that idea alone, twenty years ago, that would have saved me a little bit of, a little bit of heartache. Mm-hmm. When you talk about the canon um, and the gospels, like slipping back and forth, made me think of the Girardian phrase: the text in travail. Mm-hmm. And the Bible yeah. does feel like that, right? Where it's wrestling back and forth, um, fighting, is that the right word, with each other and slipping sure. back and forth. So yeah. um, is that one of your, so so when people come to you with their problems about the Bible, and there obviously there are a number of problems, a lot of great things, but a number of problems. Yeah. Um, but when it's kind of going back and forth like that, is that your normal go-to, like, try to unpack that in a Girardian kind of a way, or are there other helpful things that you try to introduce um, in that context? You know, I think that is, um, is not an entry point for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it has to be a little bit farther down the line because especially if you lead with the, the canon contradicts itself, then that's going to like blow people's minds a little yeah. bit. You have like, you have to start, yeah. I think it's important to start with Jesus um, and so, no, I'll usually start with um, the Gospels and the the role that the Gospels are playing in revealing um, the scapegoat mechanism. And so so when I start with that in the story of Jesus, pe- it's much easier for people to say, oh, like that, I've never looked at it that way. And then start looking at it and then you can move on to sort of more difficult um, things to accept. <laughs> I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is true. That's really good input because I've often said um this sounds kind of flippant. I don't mean it to be that way, but if you can play the Jesus card, yeah. especially with evangelicals, like evangelical evangelicals really care about Jesus. Yes. Um, and so if you can keep it centered around that, you have a much better chance of getting mm-hmm. down the road somewhere than yeah. Trying to pull other stuff out. Yeah, absolutely. So that's where I start. I mean, I always do 
start with Jesus. I'm a gospels person. That's like my area of study within yeah. the New Testament. So yeah. <laughs> that's the way I go, where I go first. Hey, I think that's 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 a pretty good uh, that's a pretty good place to study and a pretty good place to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, your book talks about you know your three kind of main things are scapegoating with uh, in the Bible with women uh, with the outsider and is the other one the poor poor and infirmed yeah poor and infirmed mm-hmm. um, did you just land on those because I mean it was obvious that those themes were emerging in the life of Jesus or yes. other reasons. Yeah, no, it emerged straight out of the the gospel stories of Jesus, like looking at who Jesus was interacting with the most and not just interacting with, but centering their um, their stories um, and lifting their voices. Right. And it's not just what Jesus is doing. It's also what the gospel writers are doing with the story of Jesus. Right. And it keeps coming up over and over again. Women, especially because of the way they were um, treated in their context that um, Jesus had a different way of interacting with women and centering them in his ministry. Um, But then so much of Jesus's healing ministry had to do with healing people who were infirmed. Um, But also a lot of his healing ministry was around the poor. Most people he came in contact with were were people in poverty as he was um, as well. Um, And then you, you get these glimpses of outsiders too. It's, it doesn't happen as often as seeing women or whatever, but you do see Jesus um, when he comes in contact with outsiders um, from his culture, the way that he interacts with them. I'm thinking especially of the, the Samaritan woman at the well, right? The way that he interacts with her or the Canaanite woman. Um, outsiders play another uh, big part in Jesus's ministry. So, yeah, I kind of just came out of the text. Um, but then, you know, as I traced it through church history, you know, you kind of notice that that the church continues to scapegoat these people who are scapegoated by society, despite or in spite of the fact that Jesus actually tries to stop scapegoating them, you know? So, um, yeah, the church hasn't really paid uh, enough attention to to Jesus's story and the way that he um, interacted with people. It's a shame. Um, It happens because of of power, right? Because of power in the church. But Mm -hmm. Say, Say more about that, about power. Yeah. So um, when you think about the Gospels, especially, but really the whole New Testament, um, it's written by by early Christians who were scapegoats. They were the a lot of them were people in poverty. They were outsiders. They were people who were um, scapegoated by the Roman Empire, blamed for the fire in Rome and all sorts of things. Right. Um, They were outsiders. And so when they wrote um, the story of Jesus, it was from that perspective. However, it, not too too long after that, um, the church started gaining more power um, and influence, authority in society. You know, by the time we get to Constantine, um, then it's Christians are no longer a marginalized group; um, they're a group that that are in power. And so, the way they read the Bible, the way they interact with their society around them, just changes. I mean, it changes over a long period of time. Um, but then they become the scapegoaters. Once they have the power, they become the scapegoaters and no, are no longer the scapegoats or the ones who stand up for scapegoats, right? So, um, and it just continues on and on like that for the rest of church history. And here we are. And here we are. Jeez, it's so, yeah. uh, yeah, so disappointing to say the least. It is disappointing. Those the, we claim Jesus, you know, yeah. as the center of our faith, and yet 
we act so contrary to what he taught and the way he lived. Yeah. Yeah. We, we rally around the most gracious person who's ever lived, but we don't have the grace to see the outsider. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I really appreciated that. And I, I thought your writing was, was done really well. And, and it's going to be a resource that I will use and give to other folks. Thanks. I mean, I really wanted it to um, be accessible to people. I mean, mm -hmm. there it is, it is a has a little bit of scholarship in it. I mean, anytime you're going to talk about Gerard, it's going to sure. it's going to be um, difficult. But I really wanted to make Gerard accessible, and then reading the Gospels on on that kind of literary level more accessible to people because in people in the pews, if you want to say it that way, um, don't know how to read the Bible well, and they don't have access, right. I think, to a lot of the scholarly academic stuff that that we do. And so I want to make that more accessible. Yeah, that's great. That's a really good um, some good motivation there. Are you teaching this? At Campbell, are your young people uh, embracing this? How's that going? In some contexts, yes, uh, I'm teaching it. I don't, so I teach every semester, I teach this Introduction to Christianity course. Um, and I, you know, I, there's so much involved in that. We have to do Old Testament, New Testament, New Testament um, church history, and then theology and practice. So I don't, I don't get a lot of time to talk about um, these things. I'll mention some things, like try to drop like hints uh, of what they might learn if they came into an upper level class, but I don't get to do it there. But with my majors, I will. Um, and usually I do it in the context of reading the gospels um, with that as that one of the lenses, right? So, I mean, I teach some various ways to look at um, the gospels, but I will teach Gerard and they, they, they have, they don't do, they do not have a hard time with him. They can accept it. Um, they can see how it um, brings out things in the text. But I don't think they're trying to accept sort of Gerard in a, in a, in a larger sense. I think if they tried to do that, it might they might have more pushback, right? They're mostly just trying to interact with him and the, what he says about the Gospels. Um, and to be honest with you, they won't push it all the way in their minds. And so it's not as challenging for them as it may be for people who, you know, were sitting down and trying to talk about the implications of Gerard for society um, and for, you know, all of the Bible and things like that. So um, I hope one day to teach a class on Gerard. Um, we'll see how that works. It would probably have to be an honors class because, you know, I'm working with undergrads here. So some of them um, just aren't there yet. But I bet you I could teach an honors class on it. Yeah, for sure. I've had opportunity to teach, um, oddly enough, in some athletic settings. And mm -hmm. even in, in some secular settings, um, which actually I don't even love that word secular, whatever, right. you know, non-overtly Christian settings. Right. And uh, it's been so much fun because um, I'm introducing, you know, Girardian thinking with these young people and yeah, they're blown up about it. And it's, <laughs> it's really, really interesting. But yeah, like you said, there's so much to it. You could go on and on and on. It's hard to hard to unwind it all. Sometimes I'm, I feel bad even bringing it up because I'm like, oh crap, if you take this seriously, you're going to, you're, you're going to unwind a lot of stuff and I don't want to be responsible for that. But yeah, that's so true. You have to, yeah, be a little more responsible with the use of Gerard in the classroom because yeah, yeah. it could, it can really deconstruct people pretty quickly, deconstruct right. their faith. Um, yeah, but I think, uh, I mean, it has potential to, like, if you plant seeds, and like for me, for in, in undergrad, 
for it to you know, sort of grow and yeah. then help them in the future when they're going to ask, they ask more and more questions, I'm sure. Yeah, that's what I, exactly. That's my hope and prayer too, is um, you can't, you can't get it all in a session or two, but hopefully you're planting seeds and later on in life when, especially themes of sacrifice or number of Mm -hmm. things that crop up, maybe it's on the back of their mind to be like, oh, maybe God doesn't need me to do this. This is maybe my own need uh, versus what love might be asking me. Mm -hmm. That would be cool if we played a role in that kind of yeah. thing yeah, yeah it would how do you um well i don't want to presuppose that you have problems with gerard um there are some things that i struggle with and namely probably uh it can get regressive and it can kind of turn in on itself just the mm-hmm. doubling back and forth and and gerard especially at the end of his life um wasn't particularly hopeful his last book was really uh, gosh, disappointing in some ways and depressing. Yeah. Um, Pessimistic, maybe? I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, well. In the fullest sense of like the, you know, what we, the normal colloquial way it's used. Right. So I, I really, I really frustrated, that really frustrated me. And um, so when I did, you know, when I took a deep dive with Gerard and tried to smash him up against open and inside open and relational thinking, I quickly found out I'm going to have to kind of critique this, which was a very intimidating thing. But anyhow, I'm rambling. What for you? Um, uh, I don't. I don't know if I have a question in there. Other than, do you have you struggled with any of that? And uh, how do you how do you find hope um, in the midst of mimetic theory, which I think is very very true? Right. So, how are you finding hope in that? Yeah. So I re- I relate most to, I guess you would call it uh, mid-career Gerard. I mean, that's where I've done most of my study, Um, you know, things hidden and stuff like that. Um, Yes, he took a different turn. I don't know if different is the right word. He he, he, he pushed farther, right, Mm -hmm. Um, towards the end. And he did go to more pessimistic places um, than I would go. And I think it, I think it has to do with the with his view of, of apocalypse and apocalyptic and revelation, which I don't share exactly. Yeah, tell, um, tell say more about that. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think apocalypse in the in the Bible, apocalyptic literature in the Bible, um, including Revelation, uh, is actually not pessimistic. Uh, it's it's hopeful, right? Um, it's it, it is it, it's pushing towards uh, peace and the recreation of all things and renewal of all things. Um, and I think it's, it does, it sounds pessimistic and it sounds, um, there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of violent imagery and things like that. Uh, but I think about it as a warning and maybe that's what Gerard was doing at the, near the end. Um, not so much saying this is a, this is 100% how it's gonna happen, but painting that picture of apocalypse as, you know, as a sense of warning to people. Like if we don't imitate Jesus, if we continue in this mimetic cycle and this violent cycle and we don't imitate Jesus, that is what's going to happen. Uh, maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe that's not what he's doing. I don't know. So, but I, I think that revelation points us more to hope um, and trying to warn us. I mean, that's just the genre of literature that it, that it is. It's using these, um, you know, horrifying images to, to wake us up 
right mm -hmm. to to what we are and what we're doing and what's at at work in the midst of us and so that we can fight against it not in a violent sort of fight <laughs> right but in a giving up loving your neighbor sort of giving up your life and loving your neighbor sort of way so yeah um is it's it seems to me to be it would be prudent it'd be wise whenever anyone talks about apocalypse to kind of remind ourselves that you know for us in our culture apocalypse has it's a master signifier of a word it has all this baggage and it's 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 solely the end of the world um but but now you're the new testament scholar so you can correct me if i'm wrong um it it doesn't necessarily mean physical violent end of the world it's an unveiling it's a revealing yeah. of this new pattern and um so i just thought it was really interesting especially in his last book that he 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 because clearly he's smart enough to know that Right. But he just wants to take it in a way that, like, we are slated to go this route. And I'd like to think that we, we don't have to have a physical violent apocalypse. Right. No, I, I think the same. But the more I think about it, I do think maybe he was embodying what it um, what it looks like to, to be apocalyptic, right? I mean in the pessimistic way that he was looking at i don't know maybe i'm giving him more credit than i should but if he embodied that that way then he would sound like you know a harbinger of uh of doom or whatever but for yeah. for good reason right to wake us up to that sure sure no I, and I, do, I do think there's probably some truth of that i i think that he would have loved to have think have thought and it, it could be true based on what I'm talking about, my writing and my thinking, it's going to help people avoid this. Right. Um, right. But the other side of it, which I kind of hear you saying, and what I think is probably accurate is to say, there's no reason to avoid an unveiling, the unveiling mm -hmm. of a new pattern. And mm -hmm. I think he would be all for that too, because he knows the old pattern is all about this demand for sacrifice and violence. Yeah. And that's not our hope. So yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. See, I can be nerdy too. I mean, we could, we could go, we could talk a long time about that. But anyhow, I wind up wrestling with a lot of that with my work. But open and relational theology uh, has helped me, you know, mm -hmm. have gained the language to kind of critique some of that and maybe have the confidence to stand up in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, are you going to? Uh, I know you went to beer camp last year. Are you doing that in Springfield? I did go last year. I'm not sure if I'm going to go this year or not. We'll have to see what's going on at the time. Um, it's hard to leave in the middle of the school yeah. session. But yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to. Last I'm gonna, time it was in North Carolina, so I, I didn't go very far. <laughs> well, literally. So this time's in Springfield, and I'm normally in Kansas City, so it's uh, not going to be far for me. But hey, when you if you go, make sure to put in Jonathan Foster as your code. So you can get oh yeah twenty five bucks off and mm -hmm. or I don't even remember what it is I think it's twenty five bucks. No, I'm kidding. You have probably lots of friends. You could enter the code or well, if you get to come, we'll uh, we'll meet there in person. If not, we'll meet virtually again in August. Yeah. And uh, thanks for your work. Thanks for being a part of the Girardian Intersection thing, which people can find out about the tickets on Eventbrite. Just search for Girardian Intersections. It's the easiest way to do it. And people need to make sure they find your book, Scapegoating. What's the subtitle? Victims? The Gospel Through the Eyes of Victims. Yes, yes, yes. Sounds good. Well, Dr. Jennifer, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Thank you. It was great. Chat. Appreciate it. All right. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye.